Hello, and welcome to One Great Leap, presented by AITruth.org. I am your MC, Noah Whitman. Today's episode features Courtney Abercrombie, founder of AITruth.org. Courtney has a very interesting background, including her time at IBM, where she got to lead an internal shark tank for artificial intelligence projects. So, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Here we go. Here with me, I have Courtney Abercrombie. Courtney, I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. So I founded AI Truth, which is a nonprofit um, for, well, some people call it AI ethics, but I, you know, you can also say it's responsible AI because ethics kind of is a loaded word. Implies right. that you're purposely doing something unethical, which you know I don't think that's the case with most folks. But but I think everybody agrees that we can all be a little more responsible with our uh, with our AI systems and and how we create them and use them and design them and and all of that good stuff. And so um, so I spend a lot of my time when I'm not doing um, AI truth related uh, things. I advise teams and organizations on venture capitalists and startups on driving innovation um, and sustaining it with responsible innovation practices. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, like 90% of what I do is focused on data ethics mm -hmm. um, as opposed to machine learning ethics itself, because so much of what can go wrong even right down to the training of machine learning capabilities is in the data. <laughs> so you get that wrong and you kind of got everything wrong. So, um, right. so that's what I do. Um, I'm actually much more known uh, for my days at IBM when I basically had a, if you're familiar with the TV show, Shark Tank, a Shark Tank incubation, oh, yeah. you know, innovation incubation uh, type of, uh, you know, uh, thing going there where I would look across all of the different uh, custom AI and machine learning applications going on and things we were building for clients. And I would say, okay, what out of these do we want to try to fund and make bigger and scale it and put some real hardened uh, methods and procedures behind those. I'm sure like anything, you know, there's, there's pros and cons. It probably wasn't fun all the time, but, but the idea of a internal shark tank sounds pretty awesome, especially at IBM. I'm curious though, how did AI truth come to be? You know, what was your kind of moment or, or motivation where you knew that that's where you wanted to spend the, the bulk of your time? Well, I watched as a lot of different things at a lot of different clients. So like I said, you know, flying all over the world, meeting with different groups and groups internal to IBM, data science teams internal to IBM, as well as the uh, client teams, um, you know, ranging from digital officers who were doing some kind of new um, you know, social media command center or some kind of really, you know, interesting new customer experience that they wanted to do with AI and machine learning capabilities. And as I went around, and it wasn't just, you know, I won't pick on just chief digital officers or any particular role because, you know, AI is prolific everywhere in operations, in finance, in you know, Wall Street's been using it forever in all the banks. Um, they've always had algorithms for forever. Um, the machine learning part may be a little bit new, but the algorithms have been there for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had quants, you know, forever. So, but that being said, when you start looking at what machine learning is designed to do and, and our narrow artificial intelligence, which is the bulk of what, what AI is really going on, that's what we're seeing the most of in businesses today. When, we, when I start looking at what machine learning is really designed to do, it's designed so that you are taking something and, and you're either going to make revenue with it or you're going to cut costs, right? It's the two levers. It's always the two business levers. You're going to mm -hmm. make something more efficient by making, you know, making it automated 
or you're gonna are you gonna create something that's a little bit different that people haven't seen before or maybe enhance an experience of some sort a customer experience of some sort even if that's something like using an AI chatbot instead of a, a person because you can get through so many answers faster with chatbots um, than you can you know people that you know, you, you, you can't, sometimes it's hard to, to man a call center 24 seven, especially right, right now, especially right now. I know companies are very happy they have invested in those chatbots, but those are some really great examples. But I also saw some really um, challenging examples <laughs> of, of what is a very fine line, I would say, between, and I think, you know, I want to back up and say this statement, and maybe it sounds like I'm backpedaling a little bit, but before I get <laughs> into right. the real meat of the story here, but, sure. but, you know, AI only, it only um, makes bigger, magnifies what we already have as challenges in the business world. It's not that it's creating new opportunities to be, you know, um, questionable <laughs> in how we use data, but it definitely is giving an opportunity because there is so much more data available now. And because AI can just actually crunch through it all, um, it does lend itself to being more actionable, um, making some of the things that maybe people would question doing before possible. Right. And so when you think about the fact that you are automating decisions in many cases, um, you know, and I'll give you an example. Here's a, here's an, a very innocuous example. Um, a, a person calls into a chatbot and instantly the chatbot says, hello, you get a greeting. And, and then it's right into, you know, what, what can I help you with? And then, and then you tell it what you can help it with. And then, um, I mean, what it, you tell it what your problem is, and then it can tell you what it, what it can help you with. And then it, it's going to automatically send you down a tree, a decision tree of some sort um, to help you. And that's just a normal, that's just a normal automation kind of thing, right? That's not a, that's not something complex necessarily. <laughs> um, but in, in certain applications, like let's say, for example, um, you know, you're trying to get decided on a claim. Um, for a health insurance, and let's say, um, you know, part of your questioning, is you want to know, why didn't I get this claim paid for? Um, and your claim may be, why didn't I get, you know, the 70% of my surgery for whatever, insert random thing here. And, um, and it says, well, uh, you know, let me run through a list of things with you. <laughs> and what if, for example, it it's, it has understood your genetic tests. <laughs> it has understood that you went to Dunkin' Donuts three times this last week from your GIS and your mm -hmm. watch, from your smartwatch, that you don't do any exercise at all. And maybe what you're hoping to get paid for is, uh, you know, a heart-related, um, you know, surgery or maybe it's a um, diabetes medication. I don't know, whatever that claim may be. But you see how quickly you can start, this thing's going to start decisioning for you. And that, while the chatbot is kind of like, oh, well, that's fine because it's going to send me down the right path to get an answer. Mm -hmm. This case is going to send you down a path and it's going to judge you basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it's labeling you as you give it information or as it's already collected information. And, and it's not just things like that. And I'm not, Again, I'm not giving you specific examples from, um, you know, my IBM experience because I'm not able to do that. But, but I'm giving you some examples that aren't completely inconsistent with the types of things I might have seen. Yeah. Yeah, that, <laughs> um, that's interesting. So, I mean, th these are ones that have made the headlines in some way, shape, or form. So they're, mm -hmm. they're public information. But you can see real easily how you get from one point to the next. And and that there's so much social media information available 
your your GIS, you know, all of the the GPS informations on your phone, on your mobile phone, on the apps on your mobile phone. I mean, even something as innocuous as weather, um, which most people check ten times a day or more, um, is constantly pinging where you are. Right. So, I mean, it, it depends on what apps you have on your phone and what they're selling on the back end. <laughs> And so you, you were, can use this. <laughs> yeah. And you were seeing all of this in your role at IBM and I take it you became concerned or, or felt somewhat of a, a calling yeah, to go realized, out. And... Yes, exactly. I just realized there's so much information and, and in the past, nobody was really concerned about how much information was being collected because you couldn't really harness it before. You couldn't do anything with it. I mean, because it was just so big and so massive and there was no real good programs before to be able to analyze it or find trends. And now we have machine learning capabilities that are like, you know, big data's best friend as far as <laughs> analytics go. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not to say that, you know, you can also develop machine learning on small, you know, small amounts of data, but where it really comes in and has a big strength for corporations is, is on the major, major finding of trends amongst all your customers. And if you have 10,000 or more customers, even better, because then you'll really be able to get to the bottom of the trends. And, um, and so anyway, yeah. So when I started realizing Wow, people don't have a single idea. I mean, just your average person, like, you know, anybody you might find just standing around at the post office or, you know, wherever you go, just walking around outside, you see another person, a neighbor, hey, you know, those those people, you know, if they're not directly involved in AI research or even in the technology world, they probably don't have an idea that that this level of information exists on them mm -hmm. and that they can that they are secretly being labeled like you know that person unhirable this yep. person pregnant that person. i mean like we all know the target case you know where the uh, you know the the dad was receiving these coupons in the mail from target for his daughter and they were addressed to his 16 year old daughter and he was like what's up why are you sending he called the manager of the store why are you sending a you know, pregnant uh, coupons or baby coupons to my daughter, you know, and then come to find out <laughs> she fit a profile, right? Oh, wow. And yeah, so, that does sound familiar now. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, sometimes it's scary, but a lot of people are like, wow, you know more about me than I know about me, mm -hmm. just based on what I'm buying, even, that I happen to have bought the same exact stuff that, like, five other pregnant people bought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, you know... <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, we're in, we're in a weird and interesting era with AI right now, you know, because yeah. sometimes machines can actually tell us more about ourselves than we can, which is very bizarre. <laughs> right. So does AI truth have a, a mission and vision statement, so to speak? Like what is the, what is the goal? Yeah. So, I mean, the goal is I want to try to help as many uh, people to be empowered and to really understand about AI so that they can safeguard their privacy and really surface the issues. So it's all about sharing the knowledge out, surfacing the issues that matter. Like so many people, I can't tell you, um, want to know, hey, can 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 uh, AI mess with my job? Could it limit my job opportunities? Or could I be fired because AI? I mean, there was a recent headline about, um, you know, whether or not an AI could predict if you're going to quit, if you're at risk. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, I mean, and yeah, they said with 95% accuracy, whatever that means, I've always loved accuracy numbers, because <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Uh, well, and I say that facetiously, because um, accuracy means nothing. Like I used to love the data scientists that come in. They don't know anything about the field. And many argue that they don't need to know anything about the field. They don't need to be an expert in the field. Um, and I would say, well, that's okay. If, as long as you're working with experts in the field, but if you're just doing it by yourself, that's a bad idea. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, they would, uh, they would come in and they would just look at this, you know, data set and then 
um, you know, just make, make decisions, start, start making policies, not policies, but, you know, start building it into their, their systems. And, and it's just like, wow, you know, people don't have a clue that, that this kind of stuff is going on. So servicing yeah. the issues and then allowing people to, um, you know, prepare for action. So whether that's, you know, hey, we need to go and, and talk to our congressman about putting in some uh, regulatory, you know, um, some regulations or whether that's about, you know, hey, we as a group of professionals need to come together and decide that we're going to do this or do do not do that, you know, kind of come up with some norms for ourselves. Um, whatever that looks like, you know, that's that's what we need to be doing is policies and, you know, talking through the issues like jobs and bias and, you know, uh, privacy and uh, control over your own over your own systems. There's a whole list of things that people just need to be aware of. Right. So. And- and going back uh, to IBM or, or maybe even before that, where did this start for you? When did you, when and how did you first get involved with AI? So I had been involved with developing a huge community of chief data officers and really helping organizations um, from the CEO level down to put in place uh, leadership over data. Uh, because what we had found as IBM is when we go in to talk to clients about data analytics, they have about 50 different people inside of an organization, all kind of at manager level. Um, so nobody really had the power to um, organizationally, you know, take everything from across the organization and put it together. So um, it, it often was uh prohibiting each individual group. So you'd go in and you talk to finance, you go in and you talk to marketing, you go in and you talk to operations people. So what I did was try to help them come together under one leadership, set up centers of excellence in federated fashion to have outreach into those marketing groups and the finance groups and so forth, but still have a center where they could get at all the data across the company so that they could help each other. And so in doing that, of course, you know, the natural, I helped build career paths for, for chief data officers. I mean, truly helped launch this as a new role. That was, that was my role. Help chief data officers launch as a real role. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and this was like back in 2013 when there was only three chief data officers around in the world. And, um, and so, you know, just as part of that, though, we started with all of this data governance and kind of, to be honest, it's the stuff nobody really wants to hear about. Yeah. Um, but now everybody's dying for it. <laughs> like they wish they had, they wish they had more um, understanding of their data assets. And you know, even Doug Laney wrote this fantastic book about infonomics and you know, how to harness the power of the data and treat it more like an asset, like you would your monetary assets inside of a company, you know, make sure you track them. And even your inventory, you, you always know where your inventory is, but yet you don't seem to know what data you have, who you're sharing it out with, who's getting charged for what, (laughs) but yet it's like one of the things that everybody wants to use as gold, you know, what all the different analogies for data these days, you know, Oh, it's the oil. It's the, It's the gold. It's the the modern insert. Incredibly valuable asset. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Historical uh, equivalent. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, so in doing that though, I mean, we kind of got from, it went from, so the career path that I, that I had helped, you know, along with the feedback of, of others who were starting to be in charge of data, um, along with feedback from roundtables that I'd run with CEOs, as to what what is it that they wanted chief data officers to do, and the ultimate one, it, there was three things. It was start start putting together all the data. Let's figure out what we've got, you know, kind of thing. That's more of a data governance type of deal. The next one was like business optimization. Where can we apply data analytics so that we can either do the two things once again, cut costs or create revenues? Where mm-hmm. where can we do that in the company? What are the use cases and all of that good stuff? And then the third progression, you know, and these are a progression, like you kind of first figure out what data do you have, 
it's kind of like, you know, what money do we have for different projects? Same thing, but with data. data what, what data do we have for different projects? What do we want to do? And then you kind of get to those projects in the business optimization stage. And then you move up into what is finally, um, you know, innovation, market innovation, really looking at, you know, how can we use what we have and what we've done in our business optimization? Now, what can we do with all of that in the innovation stage? And that's where a lot of the data science was coming into play. Unfortunately, though, data science took a different path um, from data, uh, from your typical data path. Um, typical data path started with a, some sort of data quality, data governance, a foundation in how to manage data, data management as a whole. Mm -hmm typically at the enterprise level. So like not just in like a marketing group or just in a small business unit or something like that, but at like a enterprise level. Unfortunately, and fortunately, <laughs> data science took more of a product development path. And so I saw a lot of data science emerging under digital offices, um, which were really digital offices were really emerging under a combination of both CIOs and marketing people. And so um, that was interesting <laughs> to watch as that morph happened because what that meant was that data scientists uh, being more like product development, um, they took the procedures of agile uh, or methodologies of agile, which affect how they how they do what they do, um, which in the beginning, that was good because you could create in AI, you could quickly create a, a minimal viable product. Mm -hmm. um, and in the beginning, that was great because it gave people promise um, of, you know, in six weeks, I'm going to see something. I'm going to get to see like a feature of some sort that's working <laughs> right. um, because that's what Agile does. That's what product development does. Um, but unfortunately, now that AI wants to become a big boy, <laughs> if you can say that about AI, um, I'm anthropomorphizing uh, AI, but um, you know, let's say it wants it now wants to become a big boy because so many so many can't launch. It has a failure to launch program <laughs> problem because it grew up as a unsustainable MVP, and then lines of business leaders like marketing people who don't necessarily know the ins and outs of all the technology and what's required to go into these things they say well that mvp looks great now just go 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 with it like take the mvp and go with it and what happens is the data scientists are like wait a minute though we beg borrowed steal stole data and other things to get it to this point like we're not <laughs> we don't have like the licenses to use this data because we scraped some of it. We don't have the, we don't even have some of the uh, infrastructure because we just kind of threw something together to give you the look and feel of it. And then they're like, they drop the big whammy, which is usually like, okay, so to make this really work, we're going to need like a million dollars. And then of course the marketing people or the finance people or whoever's funding the thing, the operations people, they're like, excuse me, you need what now? You need what? But we see a functional thing right here. And they're like, yeah, about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're going to have to like literally scrap what we have and start over because we didn't do that in a completely sustainable way because we were just trying to give you something to see. And then the, then the people say, the line of business leaders are just like, oh my God, how did this happen? I have no faith in you now. Like, how could you do this? <laughs> And you're saying and so, that's common? That's happening a lot? Oh, it happens so often. It's it's just, it's heartbreaking because you see it, it someone like me who's been around and see, has been in charge of a lot of different projects, you see it coming and you know that, that expectations were probably not set, you know, properly in the beginning. And you know, on one side, you have data science teams that believe that if they can show something really fantastic in the Silicon Valley way of doing things, where you kind of fake it till you make it, <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that they'll get 
that VC funding, or if you're inside of a company trying to get money for funding, you're thinking of it as an, you know, an intrapreneurship, so to say, but you're still yeah. having the same mindset of going and just showing the dazzly item until you can get some money. But the problem is, is that people expect that you're just going to build on top of whatever that shiny thing is that you created in six weeks instead of starting completely from scratch and that it's not going to cost them once they see something, their expectations in the line of business side of the house is like, but you have this thing in front of me. Why isn't it going to work in a scaled fashion? I don't get it. And they just can't get there and they're mad. Then they're mad because they feel like they've been sold a, a, you know, a bad bunch of goods here. And it's just, and, and you just kind of go, okay, I see this from both sides, (laughs) but it causes what happens though, is it causes um, unethical development of AI. So instead of actually taking real time to make sure that the data has been sifted through, that it's not just scraped, that if you had some sort of deal with a third party broker, that it wasn't some professor at Cambridge University who put it together off of a personality test that they did on a personality game that they did on Facebook for crying out loud, which is what Cambridge Analytica is, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the, you know, and then brought it in as if it were official <laughs> data. <laughs> I mean, that that's the kind of thing where you don't have time if, you know, with the current way of doing things. And so People, companies, you know, that's where I've spent the majority of my time is trying to help companies understand that you're going to have to put in a lot more time. This isn't just your standard product development situation. This is a, you got to truly put in the work and the time to understand where does the data need to come from? Do we have to develop the data ourselves with our own databases so that we can verify that it's a, it's of good quality and that it was um, gotten in a, a responsible fashion, not by you know some someone's brother's cousin whatever doing a <laughs> a right. game on Facebook you know to get collect profiles. Right. So, well, that the the Facebook and, and Cambridge Analytica comments uh, are, are a good segue. The the next thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's a, a uh, probably a hard answer, and uh, I'll actually make it a, a two-part question. What is, you know, if you could boil it down into, into one, one thing or one statement, what is the one thing that everyone needs to know about modern technology? And as part two, what do you see as the, the biggest changes in the the short term, the five to 10 years that, that most of us will, you know, look back and, and, and see how much has changed with our interaction with technology. Well, I think the one thing every human needs to know about uh, technology today, you know, everything about your smartwatches, your Roomba, your television, everything that surrounds you is fueled completely and utterly from data and the cloud. (laughs) So your sense of agency, and let me just back up and define that real quick. What you can do about it, I guess, is the question. Mm -hmm. When someone labels you wrong or you don't even know you've been labeled, for example, let's say... Noah is walking around with a, with a, I know, I don't know what kind of music you like. So I'm just, I'm literally making this up. So (laughs) so I can't wait. So let's say Noah's walking around with somebody in the music world labeled him as emo music. And you're like, excuse me. No, that is not me. (laughs) I am so offended, you know? Um, But one, your sense of, your agency would be that one, you don't even know about it. So you can't do anything about it. And, and that's kind of the thing. It's like, people don't even know they're walking around with labels on them all the Mm -hmm. time. And somebody somewhere gave it to you, whether it was a team of data scientists. Yeah. Most likely it was probably a team of data scientists (laughs) who work for either a data broker or they were doing a project, uh, as we saw in the movie, The Great Hack, 
you know, a lot of people were labeled persuadable, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that movie, but on, I think it was on Netflix. Um, A lot of people were labeled as persuadable. It has nothing to do with them per se, but because they lived in certain states, swing states, and because they had, um, you know, clicked on different things on Facebook, um, they were seen as someone who could be influenced um, towards a certain political party. Um, you know, and you, they didn't know that. Do you think the persuadable people knew they had a big P going around on their forehead as they were walking through their daily lives? No. Or as they were clicking on different things on Facebook and continued to click on things on Facebook? No. But all of a sudden they're flooded with these images, you know, whether it's, I I don't know, uh, I think in this case, um, I think that was a Trump campaign, right? So maybe it was, they were flooded with uh, Hillary you know, mm-hmm. things, things that were hateful about Hillary. I don't know. But um, I mean, that's the kind of manipulation, though, that you can expect. And if you don't know it's coming, if you don't even know that you're in the game, you'll just get manipulated by it. Because right. <laughs> it's feeding into exactly what you you may want to hear, or maybe it's going to really, truly persuade you. But if you know someone's trying to do it, that's completely different mm-hmm. than if someone's just, you know, having uh, your family members who also are labeled a P as persuadable mm-hmm. sending you stuff. I mean, when your family member sends you stuff, you know, on social media, you're a lot more inclined to read it than if, you know, even if it's just like, oh, mom, how could you send me this? Or, you know, like, mm-hmm. but at least it's still getting your attention and your eyeballs. And that's what a lot of, a lot of different groups want. Right. And I would say it's data. (laughs) Yeah. And and hearing that answer um, combined with some of the things you mentioned when we spoke before, um, what I'm hearing is even if like if you're not aware, that's obviously, you know, a whole category in itself. But even if you are somewhat aware of what's going on, um, whatever you think is happening with your data or whatever amount of data you think there is to work with, just know that it's much, much more like almost like you can't comprehend um, what all is being done with it or, or can potentially be done with it. Cause that, that's how my reaction has been to, to kind of learning these things from you is I, I thought I had a decent idea of what was going on. And, and you gave some examples um, when we spoke before about uh, a picture on Instagram and, and maybe there's a, uh, a pack of cigarettes in the background or something like that. And then, you know, uh, it, it can capture that data and now, you know, market to you or, or, you know, be able to manipulate things that you don't even know. You didn't even realize it was in the picture or, you know, I mean, so yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense that this is one of those situations where it's not overhyped. You know, sometimes you hear about things and when, when you speak to an expert, you're like, you know, what, what I'm hearing actually is, is not true. It's overhyped. I, I, I'm hearing the opposite from you. Oh yeah. I mean, and where they, I mean, because there's so many different kinds of data to be had. And my favorite thing that, um, a lot of people will say to me, um, just, you know, and again, these are not research scientists or technologists. They're just, you know, regular people and they have questions and they know I'm in this field. And so they'll say, yeah, but I don't have anything like, well, one, I always hear, I don't have anything to hide. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's irrelevant. You also don't have anything to hide when you go to the bathroom, but you have a door on your bathroom, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. some things are natural. But you just, people just don't need to know. I mean, they just don't. (laughs) Mm. But then there's, I mean, the other thing too is um, there's this misconception that you don't have any real data to get to. And I always say, the first thing I always, because everybody else like, well, I don't have a TV that runs off of internet or whatever. And I'm like, well, one, do you really know that? Because if you bought one in the last 10 years, you do for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but two, and it's sending. And I mean, and the, the other thing is everything has sensors on it. Almost everything in your house that's electronic has some sort of sensor these days. And those sensors are typically designed to be connected. And a lot of groups, uh, a lot of manufacturing groups are trying to do this for maintenance purposes. Again, they're, they're not necessarily up to nefarious things, 
But they also see, hey, we're collecting a lot of data off of this, you know, the programming here. We could sell this to a data broker and make some money off of it. Right. I mean, it's just too tempting. It's too tempting because they've got all this information about you. Or like for, you know, if I put, a, you know, any kind of, I mean, you don't even have to have like a Roomba in your house or a vacuum, a smart vacuum or any of that kind of stuff. I say, okay, well then just tell me, do you have a smartphone? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, then say no more <laughs> because yeah. that alone has pretty much everything on it these days. I mean, like who doesn't panic? It has so much on it that you like, I literally left my phone in the seat of an airplane one time and I ran back like my life depended on it, waved mm -hmm. down this woman like a terrorist and went running aboard <laughs> that plane and the, and the, you know, with a flight attendant, like right on my behind, like, what are you doing? Oh, my like phone, that. thank God, you know, but it's like, everything is on these things from your, your, you know, your, your credit card and your credit cards, your, your, I mean, just think about every single thing that you log into from your phone, even if it's through a browser, even if it's not an app, I mean, all those things are, are stored and they are, your GPS is constantly sending information. There's health and wellness. I mean, gosh, if I run without having my, uh, my, my uh, Apple watch on, I think I'm going to just, you know, like it didn't count. I got to go run again. <laughs> So I'm like five miles. Well, crap. I'm going to just have to go run that again. Yeah, it didn't happen. My, yeah, my battery died. So I got to go do that again. But, you know, it's like we're so dependent on all these things. And that's what I was going to say, segueing into your last question there about the five to 10 years. Um, I think the problem is data is so around us at all times that we have become completely unaware <laughs> until. Mm -hmm the Wi-Fi goes down or until um, something breaks in the house, like, you know, maybe your smart refrigerator that used to send um, all of your notifications via Alexa to order things on Amazon, or now that, you know, COVID has happened and we're all, you know, like, where are we going to get all of our stuff now when we'd normally just have this standby order going mm -hmm. because my machines know me so well now that they know to order things for me. <laughs> yeah. Every one month I get a, a shipment of vitamins for crying out loud. So, I mean, but I mean, that's the kind of stuff though. I think in five to 10 years, it's just going to get so like calculators back in the day, like, or here's a better example, computers and internet. Can you even imagine what must our parents have done back in the day before internet and computers? <laughs> like, yeah. I seriously, I'm like, what did you do? Did you just sit around and look at papers all day, or what do you, <laughs> what do you, what did you do? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, how did you, how did you function in life? Like, I can't even imagine what you must have done. If I, if my internet's down for a second, it's like, oh well, I'm not going to be able to get anything done. Never mind, right. I could be writing a book, but no, I have to have internet access. Yeah. So. But I mean, that's the thing it's becoming. And the more that we become dependent because these things are going to know us so well as individuals, you know, like my printer is going to run out of paper and, you know, maybe I've already been programming it that, you know, I go through so much paper a month, it's going to just automatically start ordering stuff for me. Uh, you know, my, my vacuum is going to, you know, know that we've got this much pollen in the house. Maybe I should be, it should be ordering my allergy medication for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I just think we're getting, we're going to get to such a level that I don't even know if we'll know how to operate as regular <laughs> beings anymore. <laughs> kind of yeah. like our, kind of like how we are with internet and computers where it's like, oh my God, you know, I can, I got to do this without, I just think without some of the things that we have these constant nudges that are given to us from AI. And if you haven't read that book, Nudge, um, that is such a fantastic book. And it was written a long time ago, but it's still true today. It's like whatever comes up to your face first is usually the thing you're going to do. That's why in grocery aisles, uh, you know, chip, manufacturers fight for that middle space because they know mm. that's the thing you're going to see first. Yep. And so I think in the same way 
that that's the case. We have AI all around us helping us make all these big decisions in life, you know, from, uh, you know, let's look up a car and see what are the, you can immediately look up a car online and find out all the next best things and, uh, you know, in a table and you can literally just right there, then and there compare it. And then it, it starts to formulate that you like this certain kind of car and this certain kind of color and it starts popping up new ones that you like. And it's kind of like, I just, I don't think we'll even know how to make decisions on our own in the future. <laughs> like we yeah. won't even, we won't even remember how we used to think about, like, I think we'll get to a point where the computers will start to frame our own um, decision-making frameworks for us. Like, and here's what I mean. Like when I make a decision about a car, I think one, do I want to, you know, how do I want to pay for it? And, and is that payment going to be, um, you know, higher or lower depending on, uh, you know, which, what financing options are available right now and what percentage, you know, is you're going to get back on the loan versus, you know, would it make more sense to just buy it outright? Um, then I think about, you know, well, okay. Um, what kind of features does it have inside the car? Cause I've never really cared. I'm more of a function, a car, a functional car kind of person. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I don't really care about, uh, you know, I, I just travel too much. I'm never in my own car. So I don't care what my own car is like at home. Yeah. <laughs> nobody I ever engage with will ever probably see my car. So it's kind of like, ah, who really cares what that looks like? But I think that right there that I just talked about, that's a process. That's a framework for how I, Courtney Abercrombie, make my decisions about how I'm, how I'm buying my car. I think in the future, though, the, the AI and the machine learning capabilities will actually start developing those framework, decisioning frameworks for us. And then we won't even remember how we used to make those decisions ourselves. <laughs> yeah, the lines are just completely blurred. I know it sounds crazy. I do. I realize how crazy that sounds. But if you really think about it, today, when you do a search on, you know, well, I would rather say DuckDuckGo, but I know everybody loves Google. Right. But DuckDuckGo is a privacy browser. I mean, a, a privacy uh, search engine. Um I highly recommend it. Go to DuckDuckGo.com. He makes no money off of it. So, you know, help him out. Anyway, so <laughs> that, and you go on there and you search for things. They immediately come up with things that they think you're going to like based on what you've searched before. Or in Google's case, it comes up with things that um, out of all the paying advertisers that they have, <laughs> that they think you'll like and yeah. you may be paying more. Yeah. <laughs> And that kind of thing. And it's powerful because does anybody ever go to page seven of the Google search? Nope. No, no, you won't even probably make it past page one. So whoever paid to be on page one is probably the one who's going to get the business, but that's a nudge right there. That's a decision-making that just happened for you because you're not going to go through the trouble to look through to page seven. You're just going to look what's on and you'll usually even assign a value to that. And in your own thinking the computer not only made the decision for you, but then validated to you because it's on the first page that it was a good decision to look mm -hmm. at that particular link. <laughs> really? Right. Because I always think to myself, Oh, if it's on page seven, then it's probably not that good, but that might not be true. They just may not be paying for that level of advertising. Right. Yep. No, it makes makes sense. Um, and I, I have used DuckDuckGo. Um, I don't remember why I stopped using it. So that was a, a good reminder. Because it's not as much again. fun as Google. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, it. we always feel a FOMO, right? We, there's a fear of missing out. There's something on Google. Google's got the cute little thing that they do with their letters, you know, on different occasions. Or, you know, they've always got some little, you know, things going on. Or, you know, even their algorithms have been around forever. So of course they have really good um, ways to, you know, organize the information for you over to the side when they started doing that little, there is a lot about technology that it's done so well that people don't really think about it. And that is how they know they've done a good job. Right. <laughs> That's how Google knows that they've done a great job is because when you do a Google search, you don't even think about it. 
but over to the side, you usually will get some sort of reference page, like a Wikipedia page about whatever it is that you're searching on. And you'll, you'll get associated um, research articles and you'll get, you know, but it'll all be nicely designed over to the side. And then, and then over to the other side of that, you'll see just a straight up listing, but it's usually organized in a better way. So, I mean, yeah, it's amazing what a million people can do who are working yep. at, on search for $300 billion at Google <laughs> yeah. versus at DuckDuckGo, which is a little harder to use than Google. You know, I'm not going to lie. Um, but, you know, you try them both out. Do Just start kind of issuing your, that can be a good podcast alone is just to start doing different Googles and different uh, <laughs> DuckDuckGo searches and do right. the same exact thing and see which ones bring up what. And, uh, yeah. and which, if you liked those better or worse, I mean, that could be a really good experiment. <laughs> right, right. And the other thing too, that I would issue as a challenge for anybody listening to this is try to download the Epic privacy browser. It's a browser. Okay. It's actually based on, uh, it is actually originally based on, I believe, Chrome. Um, but it's the, it's, it's, uh, the open source version. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. And, um, I should have known that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did, but I didn't, right. I couldn't think of it at the time. Um, but yeah, so, um, download that and then turn, it has an option at the top to turn on or off anonymity. If you turn it off and do a search on prices for, let's say travel, just look up airline tickets or something. Um, you'll get different. You'll get different amounts um, than if you if you leave it on. So turn it full anonymity and see what happens, and then turn it off and see what happens. And and plug in different zip codes when you're in full anonymity, yeah. and just see how the prices vary, because it's it, it's really interesting how these how these algorithms work and how they can, you know, price you out of different things. And it's really interesting. So yeah, I say, don't I take my word one. for it. Just do it and see for yourself. <laughs> I will. That's the first time I've heard of Epic browser. I'm looking at it now. So I'll definitely give that a shot. Um, okay. So I uh, want to wrap it up um, here. And where can people find more info on AI truth? Oh, okay. You got me. I thought you were going to ask the original question. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I realized I should plug your, uh, you know, your <laughs> website, your work, of course. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, just AITruth.org. I mean, it's a nonprofit and um, I'm, as, as a matter of fact, hopefully by the time this podcast makes it to major publication, I will in the next few days have my programs listed, my new programs listed and people can start signing up for things like helping with educating uh, everybody, uh, non-technologists, non-research scientists about AI. You can start signing up to do things like um, working with the press or doing different YouTubes um, to really, uh, you know, start telling the stories of how AI can affect kind of like what I shared with you, Noah. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it wasn't until I started sharing the stories about how AI could affect you that you really understood that there's a lot more on you that you didn't know right. about. <laughs> so I think those stories need to get out there. Um, and then the second area is really, you know, changing behaviors and beliefs around how data science gets done uh, in terms of machine learning capabilities. Um, and even for the stakeholders who fund the AI projects, people like, you know, ch chief digital officers um, who may not be as technically inclined or uh, marketing folks or HR folks or operations folks. So really just getting them educated about how to look at this and how to approach it and how to have um, you know, more confidence in the data itself and that it can be able to scale. Um, at, you know, at the end of the project. I, and I'll just say those two programs alone are going to be quite the handful. And then the third program is more of an international and home-based domestic government approach. And I want to help do my part. So I want to try to help. Uh, I want to try to help as many senators and house representatives 
understand AI and really how to um, help business, help instant businesses uh, mm -hmm. to do the right things when it comes to AI. Um, and I want to help them uh, because I see that we keep as, as a country, uh, all of our different companies trying to use AI, they just keep getting stuck at this point where they want to scale it, but they don't trust it. So they don't. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what I talk about with responsible innovation um, will help get the trust that they need, that everybody needs, that the CEOs need, that the board of directors of these companies need. Um, in order to make the AI work in a way that, that the public can trust. So I think that um, doing that through policies and regulations and things like that will be very helpful to, to keep us, you know, ahead in the world for AI. So yeah, that, that's <laughs> but those great. are the three programs. So educate the masses, change the behaviors and beliefs and really operationalize, you know, how we can do responsible ethics with the data scientists and the line of business leaders. And then, really kind of changing the trajectory of, of our growth in AI in the world, you know, from, from the U.S. standpoint. Very ambitious goals, but definitely goals that, that I can get behind. And as you know, goals that I'm interested in as well.